I'm interested in the economic catastrophe that follows the initial catastrophe, if that makes sense. That's, that's what's been called out by this recent crisis, the current crisis. There's an event, a global health event, or um, a civil action, or a strike, or a riot, or um, a natural catastrophe. And small or large, there is an economic catastrophe or an economic follow-on. It so happens that in the current instance, it's the largest ever, which presents all kinds of other problems regarding where do you get the capital and who participates in this. This episode of Search With Purpose wouldn't be possible without my day job at Exige International. Exige is an executive search firm providing talent within the Western European market for a whole range of financial services organizations. We, as a group of executives at Exige, believe that recruitment can be done differently. It can be done in a way which serves the needs of both our clients and our candidates, and also the world in which we live. We've committed to not only finding the very best talent available in the world, but also to giving 10% of our search revenue to forest protection charities to ensure that the future generations have these treasures intact and can enjoy them just as we have. So if you'd like to find out more about our work here at Exige, then please do check out our website at exigeinternational.com. That's E-X-I-G-E international.com. Or of course, you can find me on LinkedIn and I'd be very happy to have a conversation. In today's episode, I speak with David Soloff. David has a track record in taking an idea and then creating a successful and valuable company from that idea. He sold his first company to Snapchat for $100 million. His second, Premise, has raised some 60 million from the world's leading venture capitalists. And we meet David now, where he's actually working on his third company, OTT Risk, a business that is trying to create a new type of economic bond within the insurance sector using unique data insights. In this conversation, we're going to discuss the reality of starting a business and being an entrepreneur. We'll learn about attracting otherwise sane human beings to the crazy world of startups and scale-ups. We'll hear about his life's work, focusing on finding meaning in data. And then we're going to explore a bit about his latest adventures in the world of insurance and playing in a sector that, as he even admits, he has probably no right being in, but is very excited about making an impact in. David has a whirlwind intellect, which it means at times you've got to hang on. But this is a conversation in which there is real value. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, I give you David Soloff. Okay, well, welcome to this episode of Search with Purpose. I'm really happy to have um, my guest today, David Soloff, who is um, the CEO of OtRisk, um, amongst many things. Today's conversation, we're going to be able to explore um, a number of different topics. Um, so sit back and listen and learn from someone with a whole wealth of experience 
within business building, within technology organizations, and generally having fun at the edge of really interesting big ideas. So yeah, David, hi. Thanks for joining Hello. us. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. My uh, pleasure. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. No worries, absolutely. Um, David, I mean, I you've got a hell of a background, so maybe you could put it in your own words. Just tell us a bit about you know what what you've been up to over the couple of years now, and what brings you to where you are with um, with Op Risk. Sure. Um, so I, I have a pretty heterogeneous background. I come from academia. Um, I did pretty extensive studies, uh, both as an undergraduate and a graduate, in uh, history, uh, linguistics, and economics. Um, and that brought me to um, a lot of big ideas. And 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 I've always been kind of a systems person. That's that would probably be the best way to to to, to string the beads along a single thread. Um, systems have always been extremely interesting to me. Um, linguistic systems, uh, social or interactive systems, um, computer systems, um, supply chains. Uh, I, I guess I'm a bit of a puzzle person. And so I, I'm always very interested in understanding how uh, inputs impact outputs, um, which is, a, you know, that's kind of a simple concept. There are a lot of people who um, whose, whose brains work that way. For me, it's been very interesting to move from academia, where I um, I studied uh, ancient economics, uh, specifically the economic history of ancient societies, uh, modern economic theory, and linguistics. I did that here at uh, UC Berkeley, so I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm originally from New York, actually New York City. Um, grew up there, went to undergraduate there. I worked actually, uh, I, I was a professional musician for quite some time when I was both an undergraduate and then for a number of years afterwards. So, okay. What so instrument did you play, David? Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a drummer. I'm a percussionist. Ah, uh, yeah. Nice. So, um, you know, I've done my very best to expunge all records on the internet. Um, <laughs> but you know, there's the odd one here or there where you might come across a picture or an audio snippet. Um, but I, I'm going to I'm going to deny that that's me, regardless, of, <laughs> uh, regardless of how damning it might be. Um, and that was a, a truly formative and wonderful experience. And it actually gave me my uh, first taste of, of team building, business building, um, uh, you know, coming together with a group, in this case of three other people, spending a tremendous amount of time in somewhat cramped spaces with uncertain outcomes, trying to do something that you feel very passionate about, but which other people may or may not um, be interested in or like. Um, and so there's no certainty of return, a tremendous amount of uh, upfront cost, uh, a lot of risk, risk of embarrassment, in my case, risk of hearing loss. Um, there's a lot of a lot of uncertainty. Um, and so you you offhandedly referred to living on the edge or being on the edge earlier in the conversation. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess that's where I'm most comfortable in many ways, not in a not in a high wire act sort of extreme physical risk taking, but actually in um, in trying to do something new. I uh, I like working for myself. I like creating ideas. And so if I trace this back, you know, 20, 30 years actually in my life, I've kind of always worked in a very, very similar 
type of way, which is initially on my own or in close collaboration with one other person, iterating or testing ideas, um, trotting them out as trial balloons, see how people respond either intellectually or otherwise, uh, and then moving forward and building, scaling up a team and a workflow and producing something and bringing it out into the world. Um, I really, I'm, I, in many ways, I'm still doing the same type of work I did when I was a kid, you know, 30 plus years ago when I was, you know, in my teens or in college, you know, later on. So um, it's, I, I still feel like the same person I was then. So my, so when someone looks at my CV, they see musician, academic, then I went to work in technology product management for a couple of companies in Silicon Valley in the, in the, in the aughts in the early 2000s. And that gave me my first taste of, of how so many of the aspects of how my brain works, the keen analytical thinking, trying to synthesize, I'm always trying to synthesize and, and determine kind of where we are on a road from point A to point B or beyond. Um, I saw that a lot of the sort of natural tendencies that my brain has um, were well suited to developing new products in kind of an innovation framework. Um, but what I also saw was that it was great to do so on behalf of someone else's vision, but really that was kind of the training wheels for um, doing it on behalf of my own vision that I, you know, filling a need that I came to identify or attach really closely to. And I've been yeah. fortunate that for better or worse, I mean, I, there's no shortage of ideas in my brain, you know, for every, yeah, it doesn't mean most of them are good or any of them, are good, <laughs> um, but I'm willing to take the risk to try them out. That's fantastic. And um, I think you, you've been very, um, very humble in not talking about some of the, the successes you've had. So I know that you, you did sell, sell your first company, right? Or the one that you created um, yeah. to, right? And then the second one you're building and you've stepped back from now. Maybe just tell us quickly about those. and then, Yeah, um, for sure. So um, after doing close to eight years in product management um, with other companies, um, you know, I saw there the role that a, this was a, a company called Wrapped. Um, it was a price optimization software company in San Francisco. Um, it was founded in the early 2000s. Um, we ultimately uh, were able to build a product that was very compelling for um, the digital media market. And I was a product manager here. It was not a company I started. Um, but I saw that there was um, real need around um, price discovery uh, in the emergent digital media markets. Um, this was, you know, during the era of big internet portals, Yahoo, AOL, uh, and the like. Um, and so at that point in time, a lot of content was consumed and a lot of advertising was served via these sort of centralized networks on the internet. And so banner ads, not really, um, not something we think about much now, but at that point in time, banner ads and ad space being sold on these websites was really the, that was the primary inventory and that was the revenue driver for these big internet businesses. Um, there was absolutely no workflow or rate carding around how that inventory got priced and around how any sort of um, supply levels were uh, to be predicted. So the, the market need that this company filled um, was very compelling. Um, ultimately, Microsoft bought the company. Um, I chose not to go over to Microsoft because what I saw was that there was a better way to build the mousetrap that we'd been building. And that was the genesis for my first company called Metamarkets. I really had a vision for how um, 
all of the data across all of the different digital media markets around the world could be aggregated in a single place to provide some robust benchmarking and price discovery for people who had electronic media inventory to sell. Is this where uh, you would say that the idea of the importance of data and its intrinsic yeah. value was really proven to you then? This was sort of the... That's yeah. yeah. So I, I think I've said to you, and I certainly have seen this in my own... You know, I've, I've said this in conversation to a lot of people. Mm. If, you're, if you're lucky, you have one good idea in your life, and everything you do is kind of an iteration or a different version of trying to make that idea a reality. Um, and so for me, indexing um, has kind of been like the intellectual uh, fuel. I'm, I'm really fascinated by taking uh, either invisible data or disparate data or dirty data and bringing it together in a comprehensive form via an intellectual framework. And usually, you know, technology plays an important role in implementing that intellectual framework and it processes the data and outcomes an information product. It goes in as sort of meaningless or not, not necessarily, uh, it's not apparently related and it comes out as um, something very, very useful. Mm. And it, that tells us something about the world that maybe we suspected, but could never put a finger on. So it makes things tangible. Mm. And that is a, it's a very, very powerful concept. Um, and obviously in the financial or risk management space, um, it's absolutely critical to be able to understand where one is vis-a-vis -vis certain risks, known or unknown. Um, similarly, in the financial markets and elsewhere, temperature, weather, climate, um, everything is constantly being indexed and measured, either against itself or against other things that are similar to it or different from it. Um, so with MetaMarkets, the goal was to build an indexing business that enabled price discovery and transparency on behalf of this rapidly changing digital media landscape. Um, and that's precisely what we did. I founded the company. As I said, I, I was the founder without a company for the better part of two years where I carried it around as a PowerPoint in my backpack. Um, and then I was fortunate to meet a technical co-founder. We built out the first version of the product. We raised capital. Fast forward five years and we sold the company to Snapchat. Um, and that is actually now, that infrastructure, I'm really happy to say, is you know powers a lot of the um, advertising, pricing, um, and inventory management for you know what's really a really huge and growing social media platform. So that was a really satisfying experience. Um, yeah. So this so fantastic. Yeah. So you sort of taken this idea of you know seeing the value of data, but how data in its rawest form can be you know really meaningless, but has a lot of intrinsic value if it's structured and indexed in the right way. Transfer all that into meta markets which is ultimately serving this huge beast that many don't know about performance marketing, about the, right. sort of the way that the internet is effectively funded in yeah. so many ways. That gets sold to Snapchat, sort of showing you that there's a, a real strong value in, in indexing that, that data. And that led to your next idea, iterating on, again, this, this kind of singular idea that you, you've talked right. about into um, premise, right? And that's your late, okay. your... Yeah. That, you know what's great is that when after things have happened, you can clean up the narrative and make it sound like a very orderly <laughs> and calm, logical progression. Um, the reality is that it's bloody chaos. And, yes, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a near death experience every seven to eight minutes. <laughs> as someone as an entrepreneur here in Silicon Valley that I really respect um, said, um, you know, being a founder 
is it's one of the few jobs in the world that allows you to feel on top of the world in the morning and like you want to shoot yourself in the face in the afternoon. <laughs> and um, I, I really, I am, you know, sometimes the opposite is true. You actually want to do the shooting in the morning and <laughs> top of the world in the afternoon. But invariably, you're going to see peak and trough in the same day. Yes. Um, it is a, it's a, it's a dirty business. It is, it's really, um, it's, it's brutal. Um, so there needs to be a real magic to the idea. Otherwise there's just no incentive to push through. I did, you did raise a nice point earlier. I said flippantly said that you like living on the edge, but there's a, there's a definite truth to that. And then my, um, that I believe that anybody who's interested in true innovation and creating, they have to embrace this, this chaos, um, but also, the, and, and in that chaos comes failure because out of the iterations of failure comes success, right? So I can see that in everything you're saying. There is this must be this becoming used to this, this constant push and pull and tearing down and building up, but trying to hang on, as you said, to a central thesis, a central idea that's, that you believe is beautiful and has value. And that can help you move through these troubles. Um, yeah, it's the, that's the eye of the hurricane, right? The eye, that place of calm or the center of all of the swirling chaos needs to, you know, it needs to, it, it, you need to hold true to that um, and, or be ready to abandon it if it's not proving up and, you know, change it. Um, it you know, sometimes it's hard to know whether you're being um, persistent uh, or reckless. Um, sometimes it's hard to know whether you 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 truly are onto an idea and, and you're early and the world doesn't understand it or whether you're just wrong. Um, you don't, it's not like you can, you know, look at a sign that will tell you what to do. So that that's, I think that actually is the nature of the risk. You know, the nature of the risk is that you don't know, um, you don't know when you need to pull out of the nosedive. <laughs> you can't see the ground or whatever, torture your own metaphor. Um, you know, but it is, it is, um, it's thrilling. Um, and it is honest in that you do get to see an idea through if you're fortunate, right? You do get to attract capital and a team and customers and fill an important need. Um, and if you're really, you know, if you're one of the really few people, you're, you're actually able to make a living at it. Um, which is the other piece of all of this, which is that, you know, you need to, um, you need to support yourself. And that, that's one thing. But then when you start attracting a team who are leaving uh, jobs, <laughs> uh, you know, the responsibility, uh, it, it, it's no longer simply about you. And that's when, it, that's, as I say, that's when shit gets real. It's when people mm -hmm. really, when people are perfectly rational people, you've infected them. You know, they're leaving their, their <laughs> stable jobs at big enterprises and they're throwing in with you. That's crazy. It's a crazy. It's a crazy. You know, perfectly rational people are making completely irrational decisions because they believe in the idea. So that's a. Can I ask you about about this? Is really interesting because you've attracted in your time. So you built premise now, and you sort of step Shall back as, as a founder. I'm, I'm jumping. I'm jumping around. I'm sorry. I always. No, no. I, it's all right. And because I, I have a specific question about that, uh, that I, I would like to know about your because I've seen your time. You've you attracted your fair share of, you know career um sort of corporate folk right and i have you given it some thought about why you go from corporate to startup what is it in absolutely. that that's the magic why so absolutely so 
before so let can we can we just put a quick of course let me tell you you, absolutely so so after i started metamarkets and ran the company for a few years um we we handed it off to my co-founder to run as ceo i stayed on the board um because i wanted to try again at the indexing idea um and i saw that indexing and collection of kind of data hiding in plain sight in order to tell us things about the world I saw a much bigger opportunity than simply the media markets. I had this idea that a similar approach might be used for things like macroeconomics, like decision making on the part of like big policy organizations or governments. Um, and this was during this kind of the, the, this was post I post the, the launch of the iPhone and multiple iterations of that. And it was the kind of the, the, the real up leg of the smartphone explosion. Everyone had a smartphone now. Smartphones were becoming ubiquitous. Data plans, prices were cratering. Um, these computers were packed, jam-packed with sensors and photos and photographs. It was also the explosion of the second generation of social media platforms. Obviously, Facebook would be the bellwether there. Um, and what what I understood was that oh, not only can we harvest information that's hiding in plain sight in the physical world, like the price of an item on a shelf, or how many people are in a queue at a clinic, or how dingy the front of a storefront that has not been rented out in some period of time is on a given day. These are signs or signals about what's going on in the world. But one, as a one-off, they're, they're random. They don't tell us anything. There needs to be a mechanism for systematically capturing in a structured manner the same signal or point of view again and again longitudinally through time there needs to be a mechanism that controls what the data is that is being collected or harvested without that mechanism of control and definition and without on the other side of it a quality assurance mechanism machine learning image recognition anti-fraud without the 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 gate at the front and the back it's it's going to be garbage in garbage out you won't have anything useful or instructive and and so uh, back to the indexing idea, you know, I saw in in the wake of the great financial crisis in you know, 2008, 2009, and on an ongoing basis, I saw an opportunity to build better dashboarding for policymakers regarding consumer activity, um, price trending, vacancies, joblessness. And so that was the genesis for the idea behind premise. The, 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 mount, the better mousetrap that we built was we saw an opportunity to use the smartphone as a sensor and the person attached to it as a data capture agent because everyone has their own circumstance in life. They experience things, they see things. If you can tap into or harness that local point of view, properly incentivize and motivate people to go out and tell you things about the world and can quality assure the result you're collecting, shit, you might be onto something. And so, um, that was the genesis for the idea, and that's what we spent eight, you know, eight at this point going on eight years building. Um, you know, you think it's going to be a one or two year journey to getting your first version of the infrastructure up and running and selling insight and data to institutions like the World Bank or the Gates Foundation or in the UK DFID or the FCO. Um, so make that two years, probably multiply it by three or four, and then you might be close to what's right. So that's really been the story. Um, and we've lived long enough and survived, again, around that sort of 
poor idea and iterated and tried thing and raised capital and brought on teammates and said goodbye to teammates and done all kinds of things, but we've remained true or continued to swirl around that core idea for the whole period of time. And we've just lived long enough to be deposited safely in a place where there is a, there is a commercial business and it's an exciting one. And the customer base is beyond anything I could have dreamed about when I started the company. So it's been, it's been intensely gratifying intellectually and it's been also really harrowing. It's been crazy. It's been so crazy um, in all the ways that are good and bad. I can't express that enough. Like there's, you know, someone said that I'm an emotional leader. Like I, I kind of lead with my emotions for better or worse. And uh, it's hard not to be emotional or to feel things. I, you know, to be steely and cold and resolved all the time in the face of just absolute shitstorm. It's not human. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to keep perspective, but I also try to be genuine about what I'm feeling in any given instance. So anyway, that's premise. There's a ton of information on the web and on our website, premise.com about what we're doing, who our customers are. If there's anything further, I can tell you about it. Ask Brilliant. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm under an executive chairman there. Thank you very much. That's a great example. And I, I want to come back to what you just said there about sort of the, the, the reality, the human nature of being a founder and the human nature of being a leader of a business. And that's a living on the edge, you know, back to this component is that you have responsibility for more than just yourself. At some point, you have responsibility for the folk working within your business and that brings pressure and it brings expectations. And I can see how that's a, yeah, I can't, I couldn't see how you couldn't live that emotionally. You've only look at people like Elon Musk, you know, and the, the way that they, he, he had his emotional situation, you know, human moments on programs like the, you know, the Josh Rogan experience and uh, sorry, Joe Rogan experience. And, and I, I think this is actually the, so, so honest that we're all human beings trying to get through and, and, and succeed and, and dealing with failure and just living. So why not? be an emotional leader you know why is that wrong i, I think that's uh i that's think it, nice it's, thing. it's it's wrong or challenging sometimes because you can make the wrong decision from emotion um you know it, i think it's that simple you know i think that sometimes you can get overexcited or sentimental or angry and do the wrong thing mm-hmm. that I mean, that's you know that that's why with that said to genuinely lead or recruit or attract people there's nothing better than the emotion. Um, you need to really appeal to people at a gut level. Um, and at least I've, I've found this to be the case, certainly in the, and I, I, you know, being perfectly honest, I, I'm absolutely best at the earliest stage of a venture. Like I'm, I'm unafraid of a blank sheet of paper, like for better or worse. Like it doesn't scare me. Um, what does scare me is having to color in the lines. Like I'm not, like I just, I don't know if I'm a sociopath or what, but when it comes to having to follow rules beyond a certain point, it becomes really, it becomes really challenging for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I experienced that in graduate school here at Berkeley. I was in a PhD program. I spent years in the program, got my master's degree, went through my qualifying exams. Um, and yet when it came down to fulfilling the reading lists and to prepare for my orals and write the dissertation, I was like, oh, God, I just can't. Two things happened. I mean, one was like, I burnt out. I was like, okay, what am I, am I going to spend the rest of my life in the academy? I want to do something more impactful. Yeah. It also happened to be during the time when companies like Netflix were going public. I'm sorry, not Netflix, pardon me. Um, Netscape were going public and you had eBay and you had this first generation of massive businesses. This is happening not 10 miles from where I'm in graduate school. It's a little bit hard to resist 
this gold rush that's going on from an intellectual or frankly from a financial perspective. It's very hard to say mm-hmm. no to that. But um, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing. No, I, no, no, I think there's some, some real value in that. And I, I, I'm so what was the reason you created Ot Risk? What was the catalyst? And, you know, why has that idea been driven? So, um, I, so I think with, with the current company, with, with the new effort, OTT Risk or Ot Risk, um, you know, I'm, it's, it's, it's attempt number three at the indexing idea. Right? It's back to back to the future. Um, here, it's about parametrics, and it's specifically about uninsurable risk. Right? It's risk that, and uninsurable there is in scare quotes. It's 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 in it's in the quotes that I think a lot of people rightly in the in the insurance space um, refer to, you know, non-physical damage scenarios or business interruption scenarios, such as we're encountering right now in spades. Um, <clears throat> it's this idea of um, using information or data or indexes that are in plain sight to engender resilience or to bring to deliver financial relief quickly and efficiently to predict before that dislocation happens when the the odds of it happening are going up or going down to better price what that risk might be what you know the genesis for the idea here was really it, it sprung directly out of the work we were doing at premise where i started thinking a lot more about political or social risk which are these unseen factors, right? They're, they're, they're the things that make people unhappy that don't work in their world, but which you couldn't necessarily, couldn't put a finger on it if you wanted to gauge the health or stability of societies. You know, if you were to look only at physical signs, you wouldn't necessarily know. And those are the things that lead to political dislocations or sectarian violence or people striking or protesting against a government agency or frankly a company. So I realized that there was a lot of this systemic risk that was unseen or was hidden because people weren't necessarily focusing on collecting that information in any sort of sustainable or scalable way. I also knew that with Premise, we're not building an insurance company or a company that's really focused on that market. So it became appropriate for me to start working on this idea. And that's kind of, that's, you know, that's what I've been up to. Um, uh, so the intellectual seeds have certainly been planted. Hopefully people understand the, 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 the continuity. In, in all the ideas I've, I've, I've been talking about. Um, and so I, I'm to, to connect the two points in starting a, in something, in starting a new project or a new company. I, I think I, I intuitively know I'm the right person for it because it seems like it's a good idea. It's a getting better. The more I, and this segues to the second part of your question, how I know it's a good idea is by talking to people. <clears throat> so, that same process holds for figuring out where where one fits in an organization, right? Like what stage one is best suited for. And like at every point in time in an organization's life um, or a project's life or an idea's life, you know, I think you need to constantly be asking yourself whether you're the right person. Um, you know, every moment is a test in that regard, right? Am I the right person to change this idea or alter this idea? Or do I need to go into dialogue with someone? Or... Am I well beyond my um, my areas of strength through my intellectual or industry knowledge? Do I need to inco- do I need to collaborate with someone? Do I need you know who and, and what is the what's the composition of that group? And then at some point you might actually look up and say, wow, this group is self-sustaining. And um, not only are they self-sustaining, they're doing really good work. They are the, you know the children or the product of the initial idea. 
but they're bringing expertise and experience to bear on the problem and they're making the solution so much better than it would have been on its own. And then you get to the point where you're like, oh shit, whenever I join this conversation, I suck the air out of the room and I hold everyone back. I should probably not be in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that last part where from a founder perspective, um, it's really hard. That's the test, right? It's, it's so, can you, can you, can you step back? What has attracted you to the insurance industry right now? Why are you bringing this third iteration of indexing, this idea that you've been working on for so many years to the insurance industry? What has attracted you right, right now? Okay. So should I, I'll the, so the first question, um, I think that the genesis was around, um, all of the, political upheaval and social upheaval we're seeing certainly in the West, but I think certainly in the U S so you've seen it in the UK, you're seeing it in Europe, you're seeing it in all, all across the world, seeing it in South Asia and East Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, that is manifesting as for lack of a better phrase, political dis- and social dislocation. Things are, things are fucked up. Um, the elections are not going the way people expect. Truth is now open for debate. That's to a very large extent a function of these ubiquitous and, um, inescapable social media platforms that feed us via the algorithm information that only information or misinformation or disinformation that only reinforces our point of view rather than engaging us in a healthy debate or exposing us to different ideas. So you've got a hardening and, um, that's showing up in a lot of ways. And, um, I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm a patriot. You know, I love my country. It's, I, I love my second country of California. Um, it's given me a lot, but my, 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 my adoptive country, California is at odds with my, my, my native, you know, my native country, the USA. <laughs> There, and that's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not. I mean, we've got a hardening here where reality on the ground in the San Francisco Bay Area could not be more different than what's happening in Arkansas or Kansas or anywhere else in the middle of the country. That's a real that's a real thing. That's not a joke anymore. It used to be a little bit of a joke. It's not anymore. I mean, it's you can see how if you fast forward 20 or 30 years, you've got strife, but real strife. So, I, I, you know, I, I, that's the roughly speaking that that was the. That was the longer, going back longer term, that was the catalyst. The immediate term catalyst that's given real urgency to this, of course, is the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And seeing, talk about, talk about economic and social and political dislocation. We haven't even really, we're starting to see it on the economic side for sure. I think from a political and social perspective, we're set up for 20 years of craziness. And, um, um, and so that that actually led me to start thinking somewhat differently about the project. Um, I was thinking of, you know, early before the pandemic came, you know, I started working with someone who's a statistician and an actuary who's worked in the reinsurance space. And he was asking me some painful questions about my own idea, which was like, well, that's fine. This is great. It's a great intellectual idea. But what's the real loss that a business holder is going to experience? And how do you even begin to quantify or measure that? And I mean, that's a great question. He's like, so is it earnings loss? Is it revenue loss? If it's not physical damage, 
it's great for you to talk in abstract terms, but until you actually can quantify the loss, you're not going to sell insurance or write insurance against it. And certainly no one's going to fork over a premium for it unless you can explain how this hypothetical cover can protect people. And I was like, you're right. Okay, so let's really think about this. And we haven't gotten halfway through that exercise when the pandemic really blossomed and the business interruption scenarios um, and the significance of that um, came into full view. Um, and now what we've got is a lot of um, litigation and disputation over whether people are covered. And these are, you know, these are real losses that individuals have are experiencing, catastrophic in many cases. Um, and so, but they're also discovering that they're not covered from a PNC perspective. They don't have BI cover or BI cover excludes what it is they um, thought they were going to be covered against or this particular scenario. And that's not the fault of insurance. I mean, you know, the premiums that have been collected would cover maybe 1% of the total loss in a BI case, right? So it's not enough capital in the universe on the insurance side to, it's not enough capital in the insurance universe to cover this. Yeah. So the idea of somehow making, you know, governments forcing insurers to pay, you're going to, A, you're going to, you know, you're going to drop a, um, a you're going to drop a, an atom bomb on the insurance industry and it's never going to come back. Like, that's it. So, so, so I understand from that that there is a, there was this idea that you've had from, you know, it's kind of been pushing through about the usefulness of data. You connect this to a, a social dislocation that's taking place not only in the US, but in many places due to the sorts of information flows that we're being exposed to. You throw into that mix now a pandemic or a sort of, a, you know, a, a fundamental risk to economies and the way societies are set up. And all of a sudden now we have a problem of trying to figure out like how do we actually help solve those risks, right? Um, and then how do we help organizations bounce back from those risks? So yeah, talk to me. So that was sort of the genesis of this, these coming into these areas for you. Um, and, and, and you've, you've now created this risk, which, which is doing what? Tell us about what, what the, the way that you're trying to solve this problem and what it's going to try and do. I'm interested in the economic catastrophe that follows the initial catastrophe, if that makes sense. That's, that's what's been called out by this recent crisis, the current crisis. There's an event, a global health event, or um, a civil action, or a strike, or a riot, or um, a natural catastrophe, and small or large, there is an economic catastrophe or an economic follow-on. It so happens that in the current instance, it's the largest ever, which presents all kinds of other problems regarding where do you get the capital and who participates in this. Putting that aside for a moment, um, so I wasn't, I haven't, I haven't been thinking about insurance per se. You know, I'm not approaching this like an insure tech person. You know, I don't. I, I'm interested in in measurement of facts on the ground and ideas and predictions and managing risk around that. So that's led me to the insurance or reinsurance space because I do genuinely see an opportunity for the industry to offer mechanisms for resilience in a way that can be incredibly important and meaningful in now and in the future. Um, at the very moment where insurance should be serving its greatest purpose, it is um, 
inevitably and necessarily having to retreat because there isn't the capital. So there's a huge gap and everyone's expecting the government as they are in the UK to come in and backstop. And that's a real thing to do in an emergency, but that's not sustainable on an ongoing basis. So I do think with the current project, I think understanding or comprehending and predicting or measuring how those risks are trending and how they may or may not lead to a large scale economic catastrophe or dislocation, which, by the way, would be sort of a parametric framework for discussing things like BI or non-physical damage business interruption. Um, I think it's really important that we inject that into the conversation. Yes, very true. So. So let's let's pick up the 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 because you talked about some really interesting things there about sort of the catalyst of op risk, and you talked a bit about the sort of the way that you were kind of doing the parametric triggers, and then we talked about you know the, the economic dislocations left to the market, the, the future of reinsurance, insurance pricing and parametric products seems to be how you've you're looking to sort of address some of the the issues that we're talking about with these major economic dislocations, so. Let's talk about parametric triggers and so how parametric solutions can support this sort of the solution and, and be a potential um, yeah, way to solve that problem and how your data gathering is, is all about, you know, you can empower these parametric triggers potentially as a, as a solution. So can you tell us about your thinking around that, please? Here, here's what I'd say. I think the in this case, if we look at the current crisis, the, the urgency of relief is um, is really apparent. Um, people need a payout um, if they're a business holder, and they need it right away. Um, in the U.S., you know, we've made an attempt to to send capital or, or paycheck, you know, send send via the PPP program um, money to business holders as quickly as possible. But you know, it's taking weeks and weeks and weeks, and a lot of businesses are going insolvent as a result of that. So, there, you know, the, the attraction of a parametric solution is that it's clean, it's immediate, um, and it can sustain people during um, a disruptive, really, really disruptive event. Um, so that I think that's I think that coming out of this, um, I think the insurance industry, if it hasn't already embraced with both arms a parametric product and how that translates at the retail level. Um, I, I think we'll see that. And I am, I've made a career of pissing off people who actually have real experience in industries. So anyone out there who thinks that I'm don't know what I'm talking about, or I'm not qualified to have an opinion. I, I agree with you. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. I did this with premise with the economics, you know, like where I just, uh, you know, I'm not an economist, but I play one on TV. It's I, I'm not an and I don't have insurance industry expertise. I have technology industry expertise for sure. Um, so I, I'm I'm not so humbly offering the approach we're building as potentially a tool in the kit to help get arms around what the risk is, how to identify in the world now certain trigger points or triggers that could serve to measure and enable the pricing and transfer of risk around these types of dislocations and help enterprises or reinsurers predict when there is an increasing likelihood of those things happening. That's where we are focusing. Now, for that to be impactful, I think that at the wholesale and the retail, so wholesale, again, 
I'm bringing my um, my outsider's point of view. The wholesale is, you know, the reinsurance, and the retail is the the broker and the underwriter. In order for this to work, you need alignment at at each step. And I, I you know, I'd argue that I don't necessarily know that a policyholder needs to, a business, you know, a business owner who's buying PNC cover. I don't think they necessarily need to know or understand that they're buying a parametric product that's helping backstop or bolster the the BI element of of their policy. As a matter of fact, like I think if you get into that, like it's going to get confusing and I don't know that people will actually get the cover that they didn't know they needed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's a ton of things that need to get worked out. But I do know too that if upstream there isn't a convenient or easy or transparent mechanism that enables large pools of capital to backstop or reinsure those policies that should ultimately get written or add-ons that should ultimately get added on, none of this can happen. So that's where I'm thinking as you know necessary first step. And when I say pools of capital, obviously it, it reinsurers and insure everyone in the insurance industry understands that the amount of premium collected, it you know, doesn't come close to addressing or filling the coverage gap that currently exists that's going to be adjudicated in the UK and the US and elsewhere. Um, so we're talking about orders of magnitude more capital required. And obviously that's why everyone's looking to government. I think on an ongoing basis, in order to fill out this resilience marketplace with things like an economic resilience bond, which is really, you know, might be structured much like a cat bond. And that's really, you know, that's where we're focusing right now on the product side. We're thinking a lot about how to execute, build something like that in a frame, in an intellectual, in an intellectual framework that would support that. You know, I could, I could see, and I think of necessity, you'll have a huge piece of that be public sector capital, whether it's, you know, government agencies or multilateral institutions like World Bank and others. But I do also think that in this framework, private investors, private capital can and should play a role. You're collecting a coupon that's far larger than any yield you're going to get. The the drawdowns in the trigger can be modeled. We know what they're like. We're, we at OTT, we're working on building the predictive piece that tells you when it's more or less likely that this is going to happen under certain scenarios caused by certain event classes for certain timeframes. And I think really, really importantly, the ESG component of this for an investor should not be overlooked. We are, you know, this is, this is, this is what sustainability looks like. If an investor is genuinely concerned with investing in something that makes the world a better place, um, I can't think of something better than a mechanism or a pool of capital that backstops economic resilience when small business holders or mid-sized enterprises or even you know, large companies are being blown out of the water by something that is effectively an economic catastrophe. And and I so I'm not and, and so and from that economic catastrophe, when it's unaddressed or even if it is addressed, that's where social dislocation happens. So I'm not necessarily I'm not I don't think you can address the social dislocation, you know, I as a as a as a problem set is is a really complicated one. So is economic dislocation. And I don't I don't think I have an answer right now for 
for which of those two this solution focuses on. I kind of view them as part and parcel. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, hopefully that describes a little bit better. It does. It does. We're in the industry. So I, I think what I, I take from that is it's a really interesting big problem that everyone is trying to get their arms around that pre-COVID, there just wasn't a marketplace for um, pandemic coverage. Um, it wasn't where I know your risk kind of thesis started, but certainly it's been a, um, a a catalyst for the thinking that now in in society we have a whole range of businesses that are suffering and they need to have cover which enables economic resilience, which I want to talk about is coverage risk and what insurance is all about is helping business business folk, entrepreneurs get back on their feet when when stuff happens that they do not expect. And so but until this point, pandemic coverage has just not been in the market. And also then the volume of um of capital able to deploy to pandemic cover just hasn't been there. I mean if you look at the the reinsurance market, as you say, it's something like 500 billion in 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 capacity we need to be accessing the capital markets with its 100 plus trillion in capital capacity in some way and these but until this point you know how do you measure the risk how do you um give insurers and and private capital the confidence that their money will not just be all blown up in the next pandemic and so we have to create a system, a, a product that can create risk pools, which will, won't all be wiped out at the same time, given given an event, right? So this is a really big, gnarly problem, which I think, as you say, can be solved with parametric triggers in a, in a way to underwrite the risk or to define the risk. There's going to need me to some data, which is, I think, where all risk is coming in, is to sort of modeling the historic events, right? And then looking at future outcomes and how you price those. Um, but this isn't a simple problem, but it's one in which everybody in the insurance industry needs to come together around. Um, and there's going to be, certainly, as you say, probably people who think you're not, you know, kind of qualified to answer that. But frankly speaking, if, if I may say, I don't think the industry has had a has had an answer to this, and they've been working at in this sector for many many decades. So I think it's going to take some fresh eyes, some people to disrupt, some people to bring a new opinion and and a new set of solutions. And it's seemingly that parametrics as a solution for for between the the, the challenge of um, indemnity-based insurance, where you've got to send a loss adjuster out to do all the measurement and figure out what am I measuring the actual loss on, isn't fit for purpose. And so now actually parametric is probably the only way to do that. And that requires data. It requires a whole set of interesting data which can help us understand the risks, right? So yeah, I, I, that's how I see what you're working on. And I think that's a really, really fascinating problem to be getting into. So how... You know, people listening to this, you know, my my audience, the network out there who may be working on these topics, what are the sort of people that you want to be talking to right now, David? Who are those who can maybe help you along the road some way or maybe can reach out to you? What are the sorts of people that you're looking to talk to? Yeah, thank you for that. That is a really, it's a really great summary of where we are and what we're working on. Um, I think thinking about the predictive analytic piece and using large-scale natural language processing and machine learning models to 
better support risk preparedness rather than response. So the, you know, I, I would argue that focusing on parametrics without understanding or trying to analyze where those triggers are likely to settle is is not addressing the full scope of the problem. You know, if you can pay up front to reduce your quantum of loss after a trigger is activated, that strikes me as far better than scrambling to respond after the trigger is activated. So I'm look we're look I think we want you need to define a trigger point and a suitable trigger. Absolutely. And that's really important after the event has happened. But I think the the I think the, the larger opportunity is reducing that quantum of loss up front. So that that's kind of a, a prelude. So who would I like to connect with and speak with? I'm sure there's a number of people listening who uh, think I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> and 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 who think I don't have um, any right to my opinion. So uh, put yourselves at the top of the list. Please, <laughs> I want to I, I wanna know why I'm wrong. And I, I'm not saying that flippantly. Like, what don't I know? Um, help me understand that. Um, and you can be in the ILS space. You can be in the resilience space. You can be in the CFO suite charged with risk management at a large enterprise. Um, you can be a broker, you can be an underwriter. Um, you can be a reinsurer. Um, you can be an originator. I, I, um, any, any and all, anyone who's got an opinion or a response, I would absolutely love, love, love to connect with you. Like I said earlier, I'm not, I'm not just saying it. This is how ideas, um, grow. This is how they become relevant and how they turn into meaningful and useful products. I am really passionate about this concept of resilience. Um, I think we're, uh, I think we're in a world of pain right now. Um, and I, um, I'm under no illusions about, you know, the role that this approach might take certainly now, but I have also seen in my other efforts that if you can rally the right people around an idea and a product, it actually can have an impact. Really, it, it can work. So, um, I think there's a real, I think there's a real catalyst now for that. Yeah, I, I think that's a lovely, lovely place to be actually. And I think, um, you know, we kind of started off the, the conversation talking about the ideas of innovation and how you take an idea and how you deliver that into the market. And you know, the series of conversations I'm having on the channel at the moment with a lot of thinkers is is around the idea of innovation. And 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 central to that is a sense of humility. And you know, David, I've I've had the joy of getting to know you over the last couple of months, and I think you do have a desire, a humility enough to accept that you may be wrong and that you want to be challenged because um, that ultimately allows you to iterate and grow. And and I think that if anybody's listening, any founder, any um, anybody leading a business who needs to innovate, and that's basically the whole bloody market right now, um, then keeping humility at the core of the way that you approach problem solving, allowing other voices to come in and test and stress test and, and help you grow your idea, um, that for me is you know, something I always look for in the people I'm searching for and getting to join companies. So I think it's a great place to start. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, if you are those people that, that David has just mentioned and that you want to talk and you want to you know, debates and think that you've got a different view, then you absolutely reach out. And I think right now, you know, I'm talking to people, um, other people in the market, there's really interesting people like um, Dr. Marcus um, Schmelbach and 
um, Patrick Callahan and many others who are doing interesting work in this space right now, who are trying to come at the same problem from different angles. And what is unifying about them is a an integrity to the fact that they see an issue for society. You mentioned it with ESG. You mentioned it about social resilience. You mentioned it about the need for business owners to get back on their feet and for us as a society then to work together to solve these problems. And that is a really worthwhile problem we're trying to solve. So um, I, for one, will be doing what I can to help you and um, you know look for you to sort of you know be successful and I'll, I'll help direct some of those conversations towards you and, and, and all the great work. So yeah, thank you very much. And it's, it's a real pleasure to hear the way that your brain works on these topics. And sort of knowing that we're kind of tight on time now and I really do appreciate your time, I just wanted to kind of finish it up with um, just around sort of your your kind of your top three books do you have three books i'm asking what do you advise i mean it could be anything it could be business books can be you know sort of in um a sci-fi can be anything that you'd like what are your what are the top three books that you recommend uh, that's that's a that's a great one uh, it was a book i read as a 13 year old which i think sort of encapsulates how i've lived my life <laughs> and I, how i continue to feel a stranger in a strange land by robert a heimlein um sci- sci-fi book about um, a human child who's born of uh, the first manned expedition to Mars, um, but which is wrecked on Mars, and is ra- and he, the child, the boy, is raised by Martians, and then is brought back to Earth and operates at this extrasensory level where he's in, he's a total empath. And if, for anyone who's wondering, that's where the term grok comes from, G-R-O-K. Yes. Is yes. widely so that was a I read that at a certain point in time and it just continues to blow my mind. Um, so that'd be one. Uh, another one um, it, that that has really been impactful for me is uh, by Benoit Mandelbrot, the mathematician. It's called The Misbehavior of Markets. He's kind of the father of fractal math and shows us patterns within patterns within patterns. Kind of really gave rise to things like chaos theory. Um, really influential and powerful book um um really 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 meaningful to me um and then another book i I wouldn't put it you know it's like the most important books i've ever read but it's one that's top of mind for me i've just finished it it's by robert schiller the yale economist it's called narrative economics and it's talking about the role that memes and ideas and information and misinformation and disinformation play in economic life and I think that, you know, to, to bring that full circle to where we are now in the world, you've got the pandemic and you've got the infodemic, and it's fascinating to see how they interplay. They're certainly interplaying here in the U.S., I think, to our great detriment. Um, and I think it's, it's you know, tearing our society apart. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, it's a set of intellectual concepts that I think are, yeah, I think the book's about a year old at this point, but they're way more relevant now than they were even 12 months ago. I can see a wonderful thread through those stranger in a strange land, the misbehavior of markets and the narrative economics. I can see a, a really interesting yeah. thread. And, that's our yeah. in a nutshell. <laughs> and I do love that stranger in a strange land. That's an absolute classic. So um, those first two as well, I haven't, I haven't last two I haven't read, but they're, they're very interesting as well. Um, and then finally, given that you're a drummer in your background, please tell us who your favorite band is. That would be uh, an interesting one as well. Who's, who's the favorite band? Oh gosh, you know I, I think my my first passion as a youth, as a child, I was I absolutely worshipped Keith Moon, of the Who, and so I think uh, you know 1970s vintage Who, you know pre face dances for sure, but you know 
uh, Who's Next and Who Are You and the earlier records, I, where Keith Moon was sort of in his full chaos form, I, nothing will ever replace that band for me. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Wonderful. And um, and then finishing up, if people want to find you, um, reach out to you, David, how do they do that? We're obviously putting a link in the show notes so you can yeah. find a way, but otherwise. These, these days I'm finding I spend a massive amount of time on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, so come find me on LinkedIn. Um, my Twitter, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not active on Twitter. I'm a, re- a huge reader on it, but I don't, I don't actively post. Anywhere I post is it, going to be on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Well, it's been a, a great pleasure to um, have your time and, and sort of hear your knowledge and experience. And, um, again, thank you very much for telling us about Alt Risk and, and your experiences with Premise and then with Meta Markets and, and obviously all the, the recommendations and knowledge you've given us. So, um, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you very much again, David. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Thank you, William. All right. Cheers. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.